Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 51. Well, it is Psalm 51. It's on page 560 of the Black Bibles that are provided for you. Uh, We are approaching uh, the end of our summer series in the Psalms. Uh, And I realize we're not actually approaching the end of the summer, but uh, uh, as Sunday school gets ready to kick off again in August, uh, it just seemed like uh, that'd be a good time to also return to uh, our series in Luke. Uh, And so so this week and next week will be our last two uh, psalms that we look at for this summer. And, uh, And after preaching last week on Psalm 23 a very familiar psalm to many, Uh, I thought I might look then for our last two Sundays in the psalms, look at other familiar psalms to us, Uh, psalms that perhaps uh, you've read before or heard before or words in those psalms will be familiar even if you didn't know where that psalm was from, Uh, partly to help us see that uh, that really no no matter how many times you've read God's word, uh, every time you go back to it, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, is present to instruct and to uh, teach us new insights if we will listen. Um, but even if this particular psalm isn't familiar to you, if you've never heard this psalm before, it, uh, I pray that it'll, it will be a blessing to you and an encouragement to you, and it will be uh, just as God promises with all of his word, that it never returns empty, but always accomplishes his purposes. So let's stand and read this psalm, Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. 
For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So unlike last week when we looked at Psalm 23, and I pointed out that many psalms have these titles or uh, explanations of who wrote the psalm, what tune you should sing the song to, who is it for, uh, what was there a specific occasion. Psalm 23 has no title. Uh, it gives us no background of when David wrote that psalm. Well, unlike that, uh, I don't know if a title could be more specific than the title for Psalm 51, telling us first that it's written to the choir master. It's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. We, uh, we, in this past year, we finished our series through First and Second Samuel. And uh, so if you were here, uh, you will recall uh, that occasion. And it's recorded in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And this is what we're told. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And that is only the beginning. Uh, then what follows is a king's attempt to cover up his sin. And when he can't cover it up, he proceeds to murder uh, or have her husband murdered. And in the process of making sure it didn't look like a murder, several other faithful Israelites lose their lives to make it look like a battle gone wrong. In this, we see just an absolute abuse of power. We see adultery, lying, murder, cover-up, just absolute despising of God's Word and God's law and even God's promises. And so when Nathan comes and confronts him over his sin, by an amazing movement of the Holy Spirit, and that is all that we can account this to, after all of the cover-up, when he's confronted, he doesn't lie, 
He doesn't justify. He simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan's response to him is, the Lord has put away your sin. And so this psalm, this this confession, this psalm of repentance flows out of all of that. And so it's not that, that David, the moment he's confronted, uh, turns into William Shakespeare on stage and, and waxes eloquent about his sin and, and cry for mercy. David has already admitted his sin. He has already been assured of his forgiveness. And out of that comes Psalm 51. As David reflects on the forgiveness that he has already received, he's overwhelmed with the weightiness of his sin. And so he puts it down in writing. Now, both Rich and and Bob uh, and even I have preached on Psalm 51 before. Uh, And uh, and so it's not that as I wanted to come to Psalm 51 and fix something that the three of us uh, hadn't seen before or correct anything, but I just, I want to look at Psalm 51 uh, because I don't think, like, again, there's no passage in Scripture that, that you can say, okay, we've read that enough. You know, we probably don't need to read that part anymore, especially portions of Scripture that have to do with confession and with forgiveness and our washing. Because I think that at least 10, probably more, but I can't, I can't do that to you. I can't have an outline with more than 10 points. That's just ludicrous. We did that during Genesis once. It was a 28-point outline. You can probably still find it online. But there are at least 10 lies that we tend to tell ourselves about either our sin or confession or forgiveness. And so I want to look at this passage together and at other portions of Scripture uh, to try to just to answer those lies. You know, the first lie that we often tell ourselves is, I, I, I don't need to confess. And this is, this is a weird kind of Christian-y lie we tell ourselves. I've heard people say, well, haven't I already repented? Didn't I, you know, when I came to Christ, you come to Christ and you repent of your sins and you confess your sins. And isn't Christ's work on the cross final and full and complete for all of my past, present, and future sins? So if Christ has already died and covered and paid for and washed me from all of my sin, past, present, and future, why do I need to confess again? And so first of all, I would say that uh, that's an argument that's only well made if you haven't read any of the Bible. So like the whole Bible is really about, well, how do, I, how, do I, how do I respond to my sin and to God's mercy? Like, how should I be responding to these things? This very psalm is a model of that for us. Again, because Nathan already told David, the Lord has taken away your sin from you. And then David writes this psalm. So he doesn't say, Whew, that was a close one. But he digs deeper into What does it look like to confess my sin? There is something about seeing our sin and desiring to bring it to God for forgiveness. 
And this isn't even mentioning, you know, Jesus tells us that at minimum, we should be confessing our sin every day. You know, often people wonder why at Hope of Christ, why every Sunday there's always this downer moment. Everything's great. We're singing our songs. And then Leonard gets up there and is like, oh, you're a sinner. You should admit that. Or it's communion Sunday. We're about to go. We're going to have some wine and some bread. And just before we do, Leonard stands up and says, oh, but don't forget, you're a sinner. You don't deserve any of this. It's like, come on. Every Sunday, Jesus says, actually, every day, every day would be better. Because when he teaches the Lord's Prayer, you know, the disciples say, how should we pray? He says, well, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So if I'm to pray every day, God, give me what I need to sustain me and to strengthen me for your work. And following that, I pray, oh, also forgive me for my sins. If I'm asking for God's sustaining grace, I'm also at the same time every day asking for God's mercy that he would forgive me for my sins. And so we do need to confess at minimum daily. The second lie we often tell ourselves or, or we believe is that, well, God owes me forgiveness, I mean, sort of, it's part of the deal. I mean, yes, I need to confess, but I'll confess. And maybe doing it every day might add to this problem. Like I just sit down, I'm like, oh, forgive us our sins. Uh, forgive us. And, and when we were, when our kids were younger and we would have times of, of prayer and times of uh, family worship time together, you know, we would encourage our children every night to pray. And, uh, and I'll probably owe her more than a dollar for this one because this isn't a very nice story. But we would always we would encourage our kids, you know, when you pray, you thank God for something, you confess something, and then by all means you ask God for something because he loves you and he wants to hear from you. And so when one of my children would pray, she would pray and she would have many things to thank God for. And then she would get to the I'm sorry and her I'm sorry part would go like this. God, I'm sorry, um, I'm sorry, um, I'm sorry that I sin. Please give us, <laughs> and so often I would say, okay, when you're stumped, start with, I'm sorry, I'm so convinced of how good I am, I can't see anything I've done wrong today. So start there, but then, uh, so, but... We do this. We're like, well, I mean, of course, of course God's going to forgive us. I mean, we sin. God forgives. It's all part of the package. It's how it's supposed to work. But verse 1 puts an end to this, this idea that God owes us forgiveness because we're sinners. Verse 1 tells us, have mercy on me or, or be gracious to me, God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Your grace, your steadfast love, your mercy. Grace, it's that, that unmerited favor, that thing that we receive from God that we don't deserve. Steadfast love, his chesed, his covenant love, based on nothing we have done, but purely on his commitment to us, not our commitment to him. Mercy, turning away from our sin, turning his wrath away from us, not receiving what we actually do deserve. 
the very first verse reminds us that God does not owe us forgiveness. In fact, as, was, as this goes on, you, we see what we deserve. You are justified in your words and blameless in your actions. We deserve God's judgment. Even the cry, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I deserve to have your spirit taken from me for how I have wandered from you. Again, even the Lord's Prayer helps us out. Forgive us our debts. Our sin is a debt. It's in many of the parables that sin is compared to a debt, an unpayable debt that we owe. Forgiveness isn't deserved. God owes us nothing. Third kind of goes along with this. My sin is no big deal. I mean, it's just, I mean, come on, everyone's doing it. Everybody does it. I can always find someone worse than me who's sinned more than me. But look throughout this passage, we don't see, uh, we don't see David thinking it was no big deal. In verse 1, he has transgressions that need to be blotted out. In verse 2, he has filth that needs to be washed away and sin that needs to be cleansed. In verse 4, he recognizes that he has sinned against God himself and he deserves God's judgment. In verse 11, he deserves to be rejected and cast away from God forever. In verse 14, he has a blood guilt because of his sin. Now, we might read this and think, well, yes, that's David's sin. And I would I would venture to say that if I committed adultery and then killed the lady's husband and then killed a bunch of people to cover up the, la- the sin and then lied about it and then pretended everything was fine, yes, I would say that I would view my sin this way. But all of Scripture views all of sin in this way. There's no way to read Scripture and think, oh, well, it's, it's a pretty, it's not a big deal. It's a light thing. In Galatians chapter 5, And the warnings about walking according to the flesh rather than walking according to the Spirit. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. We hear these things and we're like, yes, 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 yes. Those are all bad, all bad. The next time I am tempted to practice sorcery, I will recognize the weightiness of my sin. But the list doesn't stop there. After sorcery, he mentions enmity, strife, and jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. And just so that we don't make too much of a checklist out of it, he says, and things like these. Enmity, strife, rivalries, jealousy, fits of anger. I'm pretty sure no one in the room gets off. Like, we're all on the hook now. This is how seriously God takes sin. Or in in Romans chapter 1. In describing the ways of our sinful hearts and how God will just, as we pull away from God, 
God will give us more rope to pull away from him, and he will hand us over to that, and he will hand us over to that. And the third time he says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And so what is all this manner of unrighteousness? Well, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. I, we hear these things, and it just doesn't even, like, it doesn't register to us. Sadly, it doesn't register until we hear, like, the random disobedient to parents. It's like, what? Like, that's a sign that we've been given over to our debased minds? Yes. And it's just as wicked a thing in God's eyes as any other sin in that list. So it really doesn't matter how old you are. You have a sin issue, and it is a big deal. The fourth line, we're going to have to move a little faster than I anticipated, is that my sin is circumstantial and momentary. You know, sometimes it feels like, you know, we only sin when we're provoked. I mean, sure, I'm a sinner, but I'm a sinner because of my kids. I mean, yes, yes, I sin, but have you met my husband? You know, we think that, you know, we're provoked, you know, like we sin when our teenagers act, well, act like teenagers. Or (laughs) Or we sin when our children are acting like children. Or we sin when a driver is going either too fast or too slow. But it's always those people out there. They did this. They caused me to sin. The woman you gave me. But the thing is, it's not true, is it? I mean, yes, we sin when we're provoked. Yes, we sin when we're surrounded by sinners. And it would be nice if we could claim that that was the only time we sin, wouldn't it? But Paul says, well... Okay, let's have a little bit of honesty here. That's not entirely true. Paul says, so I, uh, I find this law at work in my own heart. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. It's not just when I'm provoked. Like, I can, I can read a magazine article for hours. I go to read my Bible, and it's like... <clears throat> I can talk to you about anything, but try to pray for more than three minutes, and I don't know what I'm even talking about. My mind is wandering. But David acknowledges this isn't a temporal thing. This isn't a circumstantial issue. I know my transgressions in verse 3. My sin is ever before me. Verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Uh, David is saying, he's not saying that his mom had an unhealthy and unholy relationship with someone and that's how he was born. He's saying my sin isn't a temporal thing or a circumstantial thing. It's not a momentary problem. My sin is a natal problem. In fact, it's a prenatal problem. I am sinful from birth and before 
It's not a temporary issue. If sin is circumstantial, then I can fix it by just not hanging out with the wrong people who trigger my sin. If sin is temporal, well, I can avoid the places that make me sin, or, or I can wait long enough, and I'll just outgrow the sin. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not a sermon saying, hey, don't exercise any self-control or wisdom with the people you hang out with. By all means, understand your own heart and your own weakness and your own immaturity. If you can't handle hanging out with people who have different ideas than you, you probably shouldn't do that yet. But that's not the issue. The circumstance isn't the issue. We need a complete washing. We need a changing, a renewing, a transplant even. We need revival. Our hearts need to be re-enlivened or else enlivened for the first time toward God. Five, my sin doesn't affect others. You know, we, we don't always say this about every sin, but some of our sins, we're like, listen, this, this isn't hurting anyone else. I mean, this is, yes, yes, I have a problem with this, but I mean, it's not bothering anyone and I'm not, I don't let it get out of control. We see this inversely in the psalm in verse 13, when I'm restored, renewed, and forgiven, and cleansed from my sin, it will serve to instruct fellow sinners. When I'm restored to God, other sinners are drawn to God. But this means that the inverse is true. When I'm ignoring my sin, when I'm, when I'm not right with God, it affects other people. When I'm not pursuing repentance or pursuing righteousness or pursuing forgiveness, other people see it. Do you think your children don't notice when you blame them for your sin? Do you think your kids don't notice when, when you say, I'm sorry, but, or I'm sorry, but if, or I'm sorry that you made me? Do you think they don't notice those kinds of confessions? They do. Do you think others who look to you for help or counsel, whether it's friends or, or folks who see you as a leader, do they not see when you sin and then brush it off or laugh it off or justify it? We see each other. We know. We know when it's awkward. We know when it's difficult. Consider the circumstances of David's sin. And I know he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But that's not David saying that he didn't, his sin didn't harm other people. Listen, there's no denying that Bathsheba was a victim of David's sin. That Uriah was a victim of David's sin. That Joab, the general of his army, was brought in to David's sin and made to sin with him. How many foot soldiers died in the cover-up? How many of those foot soldiers had families? So how many children lost their fathers because of David's sin? How many wives lost their husbands because of David's sin? Our sin affects others. You don't sin in this little isolated box, you sin and your sin impacts the entire community. I mean, let's take a sin, for example, that we don't talk about openly, at least from the pulpit. Let's talk about pornography on your phone. Like what people would love to claim is a, a victimless sin. But how? How is that even possible? You are lying to yourself 
if you think that pornography on your phone isn't affecting your relationship with your wife, how you view your wife, how you love your wife, what you think your wife exists for. You're lying if you think it doesn't affect how you view and how you treat other women in your life or your daughters or your sisters. You're lying to yourself if you think that there aren't actual people behind those pictures who have fathers. Young women who are our sisters, at least in the flesh, they are fellow image bearers created with dignity and value and worth. Our sin is not this isolated thing that has no victims. And when we begin to see the depth of the problem, uh, some of the lies become even more ludicrous then. Well, I can make up for it. The idea that I can do something good enough to balance out the bad that I've done. Like, I can, I can, so, I'm not going to encourage you to do this, but in your mind, let's try this with murder. Do you know that every murderer who ever existed was more not a murderer than he was a murderer? Like, nobody has even come close to the 50% mark of like, well, you've murdered half of the human population. And so you're at an F because you got 50%. Like, let's say you murder someone today. Do you realize that means that there are 7,999,999,999 people you didn't murder today? That's a pretty good record. In fact, if you do the division, like, hey, what's my grade? You have to turn your iPhone sideways to get all the numbers in. So, you know, all right, 7,999,999,999 divided by 8 billion. And your grade, you don't have to do it, your grade, you get a 99.9999999875%. And if you take that and turn your phone upright, it rounds it to 100%. Dude, you're good to go. You're as righteous as Jesus. Like, he didn't murder anyone. And according to statistics, neither did you. But if you murder someone, you have actually killed, and I know this is mathematically incorrect, so please don't correct me. You've killed 100% more people than you should have killed today. And it's actually worse than that. It's infinitely more than you should have. But for the sake of argument, we have little kids in here, and although, heck, we've talked about pornography. So anyway, if you tell a lie, you have told 100% more lies than you should have told today. If you steal something, you have stolen 100% more things than you should have stolen. You, every single little tiny thing that you think it's no big deal is infinitely more than your perfect, loving, heavenly Father deserves because your sin was against Him first and foremost. David doesn't expect that he can make up for his sin. 
In verse 11, he cries for deliverance from what his sin truly deserves. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. You can't make up for it. It's why he says, like, listen, it's not the sacrifices. Even the things that God put in place, they weren't put in place to balance out your sin. It's not the sacrifices. It's my heart. It's a broken heart that you want sacrificed. Similar to, but not entirely, is I can fix this. So maybe you don't think you can balance it. Maybe you actually think you can just fix it. You can do something that will undo it. You cannot unsay what has been said. You cannot unsin what has been sinned. I used to use this example with my children, especially when it comes to words, because we all struggle with words. We all struggle with things that we say and things that we say about people. And maybe they're not around when we say it, but we tell someone else things. And, and I've, I've taken my kids into the bathroom before, and it always is best if you have a brand new tube of toothpaste. And uh, now this is going to be all your... Um, I apologize ahead of time for how much toothpaste you're going to lose this week. But... I have taken my kids into the ba- sink or into the bathroom and said, okay, take the toothpaste and squeeze it all out into the sink. Which, come on, let's admit, we've all wanted to do that anyway. So, so, but anyway, so you take it and just squeeze it all out and it just fills, it covers the bottom of the sink. And it's just, it, you know, it looks cool and you're thinking, oh, this is so fun. And then I say, okay, now put it back. And they're like, what? And he's like, Okay, put the toothpaste back. I mean, take your time. And like they start and they try and then uh, when it's really effective, like they burst into tears and say, I can't put the toothpaste back. I can't. I say, exactly. You can't put it back. Like you can't, you can't unsay what you've said. Like the only way to fix this mess It's like an outside source has to come and wash it all away. Like, you're not going to fix it. You're not going to, like, it needs to be fixed. It's a mess. Like, the only thing that we're going to be able to do is get a new toothpaste tube now and wash the mess away. But you can't put it back. You can't fix it. Similar to that, we want this whole fix it and forget it mentality of our sin. Let's just, let's confess, be, be forgiven, and move on. Now, I will admit, I got my slogans mixed up here. I thought fix it and forget it was from that weird flex tape stuff, the dude slapping the tape on and the fix it and forget it. Turns out, when I looked it up, I was like, how come I can't find it? And all I got were crockpot recipe books. That's why I remember the phrase fix it and forget it. I apologize for the phrase, but the issue is the same. We want a fix it and forget it solution to our sin. I want forgiveness so I can move on quickly. The thing is, forgiveness, even though it's way more than we deserve from God, it's less than you need. Yes, we need forgiveness. In verses 7 and 8, David recognizes he needs forgiveness. Purge me with a hyssop so I'll be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. But he realizes that's not all he needs. In verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. We need forgiveness, but we need renewal. We need to be given a new heart, a new desire. This is all available to us in Christ. How is it that, that, that David sees that and it's a thousand years before Christ came and that we struggle so much with this? But maybe you've seen through all these lies. Maybe you're fully aware of just how sinful your sin is. Maybe that's the problem, though. Maybe it's not the lies that your sin is so small. Maybe you're believing the lies that your sin is too big. It's what keeps you up at night or wakes you up at night. The opening line of the movie, The Patriot, is your slogan. I have long feared that my sins would return to visit me. And the cost is more than I can bear. The last two lies about sin and confession and forgiveness. I'll never be clean. I'm too broken. I don't deserve it. This is too much. The thing is, like, if, if, if I'm trying to get clean myself, certainly that's a, that's a proper view. That's a proper understanding. Like, I, I, I can't do this. But this idea that, that I will always be dirty, I will always be, this will always be a part of me, that denies completely the cross. It's actually, like, it sounds humble, but it's actually a pretty prideful statement. I know Jesus died for the sins of the world. Well, except mine. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to brag, but do you know that Jesus' blood was not enough for my sin? So I do have that going for me. Like when we say it that way, it's like, okay, that's a little ridiculous. If it's on us, it's true, but it's never on us. And David didn't say it was on him. He said, purge me. If you purge me, I'll be clean. If you wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Lord, if you can create in me a clean heart, you can renew my spirit. It's not just David, though, in Luke 5. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I will be clean. Later in Luke 5, my son, your sins have been forgiven you. Luke 7, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Luke 15. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put the ring on his hands and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat. Let's celebrate. For this, my son was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. 
And finally, I will never be free from this. What about those Romans 7 sins? The, I don't understand the person I am. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I hate, those are the very things I do. Who will deliver me from this bondage of death? Those besetting ongoing struggles and temptations that feel like it's always one step forward and three steps backwards. We come to God and we say, create a new spirit. Create in me a clean heart, God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Our sin is so attractive, mainly because we've forgotten the joy of our salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, not the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those who practice homosexuality, thieves, or greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And in Philippians, Paul says, I'm confident of this. He who began a good work in you, he will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, you have done this work in us. By your son, Jesus, you have cleansed us and washed us and delivered us from the guilt of our sin. But you have also cleansed us and washed us and delivered us from the power of sin and the temptation of sin. Grant to us that we might taste and remember the joy of your salvation. Renew your steadfast spirit in us. Give us a view of our sin that always leads us to a view of the cross and the empty grave and the one sitting beside the throne ever interceding on high for us. In Jesus' name, amen.